morning. Um, man, I was just so encouraged when I heard about the, uh, that we were able to build six homes. Um, that was new news to me this morning. And so thank you, as Kendall said, thank you for generosity uh, and giving uh, towards that. And, um, and that's, like she said, that's half of the, the initiative. The other half is to continue to meet with these families a few times over Zoom. Um, and it would be really great if we had multiple groups uh, that were able to kind of connect with individual families throughout this process. And so that's going to be, it's going to take a couple of months as the houses are being built and we get to engage with them throughout that process. Uh, and then you'll be able to connect with that family, uh, you and the, other, uh, the others that will be involved in your group. So please consider doing that. Um, and it's one thing to give, but it's also another thing to give, give time and give relationship, which is a, which is a gift that we can, which we can give as well. Uh, every year, we start, uh, or last few years anyways, we start the new year with a, with a Vision Sunday. We do a couple of these during the year, and it just seems like the right time to do it. I mean, you know, New Year's is the time of New Year's resolutions. Uh, it's also, uh, you know, that, it's actually also my birthday. I don't know if you guys know that, but my birthday is on New Year's Eve, so... Uh, while you guys are celebrating uh, the end of 2021, I am grieving myself getting older and older, and I find myself uh, less willing to tell people how old I am these days. So anyways, I did have a birthday, uh, and it was New Year's, and you know, so birthdays and New Year's and these kind of events, you often reflect and you think about you know, where life has taken you, uh, what's happened in the last year. Uh, things that were great, things that you wish wouldn't have happened, things you'd like to change, and we end up making resolutions. And uh, even this past New Year's, a couple of days ago, uh, we were up uh, till midnight to, to count down to the new year, and we ended up talking about uh, New Year's resolutions. And as always, part of the resolution that many people have, and that uh, you know some people in our family had, including me, was like, well, I want to you know make some healthier decisions and eat better. And um, and so my youngest son. Uh, said, I want that resolution too. I want, uh, I want to make healthier eating habits. So I was like, well, that's a great, that's a great resolution. And then, um, really quick backstory: his his aunt and uncle gave him a uh, a uh, hot dog uh, toaster uh, for Christmas. And so it, you put two hot dogs. There's two holes for the hot dogs, and then two places for the bun. So you toast the bun and the hot dog. Uh, in the toaster at the same time, and they and they just seem extra delicious. Anyways, so we're talking about resolutions. Countdown. Uh, the clock strikes strikes midnight, and then uh, by 12:10, uh, Sai was was pulling out the toaster. He's like, "I'm making my hot dog." Celebrate uh, the near. And we said, "I thought you had a New Year's resolution to to make some healthier eating habits." He said, "This is my cheat day." <laughs> Well, anyways, we think we can all, it usually takes me a little longer to get to my cheat day, but hey, that's you know, each to their own. Uh, but anyways, we talk about resolutions and, and goals, and it's, it's a good opportunity for us to think about that also corporately, uh, and so that's what we're going to do a little bit this morning. Uh, look forward a, a little bit and uh, talk about vision and kind of where we're heading, and uh, yeah, we changed our vision statement a couple of couple of years ago now, and our new vision statement is Shalom Breakers Becoming Shalom Makers. And you've heard us talk about Shalom quite a bit, uh, probably in the last, uh, last year or so. Uh, and that word, Shalom, is, is a really deep word, but it's not a regular word. And so we need to spend lots of time unpacking that and what that means. And we're going to give significant time to this vision uh, in 2021, 2022. 
Um, whatever year we're in. Uh, so in the next few months, uh, we're going to give uh, time to this uh, vision statement, and we're doing a four-part, a four-series, uh, four-series that are all part of one. It's a four-series package, uh, and it's called the Shalom Project, and I'm really excited about this, and so we are going to uh, break down uh, over time what we are talking about when we talk about uh, Shalom. And so uh, shalom is, is being in right relationship with God, with, with yourself, with others, and with the world. Uh, and we're taking those four spheres of relationship, and we're going to actually walk through each of those, and they're going to be a separate series. And so you see the kind of four pictures there. And so uh, in a couple of weeks, we're going to start the series uh, Shalom with God, and then we'll move to Shalom with self, Shalom with others, Shalom with the world, and that's going to take us through the first few months of the year um, up into Easter. And so I'm really excited just about doing a deep dive uh, into this. And what are we talking about when we talk about following Jesus and then becoming uh, Shalom makers? Uh, what does that even mean, and what does that what does that practically mean for us corporately? So uh, stay tuned for that. Uh, but this Sunday, I'm talking about uh, more than synagogue is the title that I've I've used, and I'm just going to skip a few stones here across some ideas, and these are some things I've been reflecting on uh, over the last uh, little bit of time. And I touched on uh, this concept on a kind of on a high broad level at our covenant community meeting a couple of weeks ago. Uh, for those that are there, but I, I want to unpack it a little bit, uh, more, than, more than synagogue. And, and so this, this idea came about as I was reading the Bible. I do an annual reading plan um, that reads through the New Testament twice a year and then the Old Testament uh, once a year. And, and I don't want to sound more holier than I am. Uh, it usually takes me two years to do my one-year reading plan, so just, just so you know. Uh, so I do a one-year reading plan over two years, and, and, and so I kind of survey the Bible as I read, and that's kind of my practice, and I journal kind of through that as I go. Uh, and so this past read-through, as I went through the Gospels, which are the first four book, books in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which document the life and the ministry of Jesus, and then it went into Acts, um, I started noticing a pattern, something that I'd kind of seen uh, before, but you know how you read the same thing, you know, lots and lots of times, and then all of a sudden certain things are kind of jumping out and being highlighted to you. And so I noticed a pattern as I was reading through uh, the New Testament again, uh, and the pattern I would just simplify as synagogue encounter obedience. Everybody say synagogue encounter obedience. And I I, I started to see the, the same three kind of concepts just kind of played over and over and over again in different stories, different events, and we, these, these same three things started showing up. And so Jesus always seemed to be going into a synagogue when he entered into a, a new town, and so he would, he would travel about, move about, doing his ministry, and often that ministry was initiated, or at least included, time spent in the synagogue. And then individuals outside of that synagogue experience, which we'll come back to in a second, uh, would have encounters with Jesus. Uh, they would have a conversation with him. They would uh, experience a healing he would give a word of knowledge. They would eat a meal together. Um, and so there was some kind of encounter uh, that Jesus had with individuals uh, in those towns. Uh, but it didn't stop there either. There was usually a response or at least an invitation to a response to follow Jesus and to be obedient uh, to Jesus, to, to God. Uh, and so these three things, synagogue, encounter, obedience, if, if you kind of put those lenses on, you read through your New Testament, read through Acts, you'll see these, these things cycle over and over and over. But at least these three things are always seem to be involved 
uh, in the stories that we're seeing in, in the New Testament. And so I want to talk about these three things. And the first one being synagogue. And synagogue, we don't use that word uh, uh, in our circles, uh, but a synagogue is a gathering at the time. It was a gathering of Jewish believers in various towns and communities. To just give a bit of backdrop on how that happened, is obviously the temple in Jerusalem was kind of the central place of faith for the Jewish people. But as the Jewish uh, people got scattered in various uh, countries and regions, uh, it became impractical for lots of different reasons to make the journey to the temple in Jerusalem uh, to do their religious activities. And so they would have synagogues, which would be local places of gathering, of teaching, of worship uh, that the Jewish people would, would go to uh, in their uh, area, in their towns. And so uh, these communities gathered, they immersed themselves in the Bible, they uh, in the synagogue, they reminded each other of the meta-narrative or the, the grand story, we could say it, the, the story that they were a part of. This is a place where they would challenge uh, ideas. There would be a curiosity that would be spiked through the teaching. Uh, there would be uh, you know, ideas that would, would divide people, and they would wrestle over them. And so wrestling with religious ideas, political ideologies, all these types of things and activities happened in and around the synagogue, and you'd have teachers or rabbis that would participate and teach in those synagogue settings. So the practice of Jesus and the, the apostles in the New Testament, you'll see that they begin their ministry in these towns, in those local synagogues. So they'd move into a town, and, and often you'll, see, you'll read the sentence that they went to the synagogue, they went to the synagogue, that, well, as they were teaching in the synagogue, and you'll see that over and over again. So this is kind of a common practice. They'd go to town, locate the synagogue, and they would... Uh, they would talk about God, they would talk about the gospel, the good news of Jesus, which we just spent a few months talking about um, uh, in fall, and, and then they would uh, do their ministry launched out of uh, that location or that, that event. And so we have synagogue, uh, and Jesus himself says, I have spoken openly to the world. Jesus replied, I always, I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews could come together. I said nothing in secret. And so Jesus just verbalizes that this was my practice. I always went to the synagogue. I was verbalizing. I was talking about the good news at the synagogues where the Jewish people come together. They would hear about the good news, and I, there was nothing in secret. This was my practice. Uh, we also see this in, in Acts with the apostles. Um, the apostle Paul, after his conversion, it says that once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. And so he had an encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, and then sometime after that, he began this practice of preaching in synagogues and moving from town to town. Um, and so, again, if you start to put those lenses on, you read your scriptures, you'll see those themes come alive. I'm going to focus on one story a little bit in Acts chapter 19, where we'll see some of these themes uh, flesh out. Uh, in Acts 19, uh, verse 8, it says, Paul entered the synagogue, and as was his practice, and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way, which is what the followers of Jesus were called at the time. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. So the Jews weren't listening uh, to the ideas that were happening where he was teaching for a few months, and then because of that, uh, he went to where the ideas or... Uh, and the belief systems were being talked about in the Greek world. Uh, so this went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. 
Uh, and so this wasn't the only time in Acts where this happens, but I'm just using this as an example of one of the times when Paul uh, targets going to the synagogue. Uh, and so out of the three of these, synagogue, encounter, and obedience, synagogue for us uh, is the one that we would be most familiar with, even though we don't call it that. Um, but synagogue simply means congregating or coming together. Uh, and COVID has made this emphasis increasingly so, uh, even though, you know, ironically, we haven't been able to gather as we uh, once were able to gather. But as you listen to people grieve and talk about the challenges of COVID, uh, one of the things we grieve is not being able to gather. It's kind of accentuated uh, that this has been a focus in an area that we have invested a lot of time and energy into. Uh, in fact, it's so important that uh, many churches, including ours, have had to uh, move a lot of ministries online. So even if we aren't physically gathering together in a physical location, we are virtually synagoguing, we're virtually gathering uh, uh, now. And so we've had to be creative and change the ways that we synagogue, if I can, if I can call it that. Um, and so synagoguing is not a bad thing. Uh, it's an important thing. It's a vital thing. Uh, but when synagogue is left to itself, it's easy for church to become something that you consume. It's, it's, it's easy for it to be a, a one-way relationship, you know, where there's a band on the stage or on the screen, and there's a speaker on the screen, and you're receiving or consuming music or ideas or preaching. And, and, and over time, if synagogue is the only focus, the medium becomes the message, and we start to think that faith uh, is actually something uh, that you just have to believe or receive, not something you participate in, which we'll come back to that in a, in a second. Um, and so we have, a, I would say, an overemphasis on the synagogue. Uh, not that we think it's too important, but maybe just because we haven't thought about the other two, which we will come to in a second. Now, something we've also seen in the last couple of years is we are entering into an increasingly uh, volatile culture, uh, and some have referred to this as cancel culture. Uh, we're just in a moment. Uh, you know, celebrities are people that have had careers for 30 years. They say the wrong thing, uh, and their entire career is canceled. Um, or, you know, a photo shows up of something from 20 years ago, and their entire career gets canceled. Um, and so this cancel culture uh, is, is growing. This volatile culture is, is part of the environment that we are increasingly living in. Now, this cancel culture uh, has and will, I believe, increasingly have an effect on our synagoguing. Um, we know that religious freedoms in, in our country are being challenged. Uh, the the meta-narratives uh, that, you know, synagogue was talking about, the grand story that we are all, all a part of, uh, those type of meta-narratives are continuing to be challenged um, and and on top of that, there's a level of institutional uh, distrust. So any organizations or groups of people, there's an inherent distrust that we have as a population towards those in authority. Uh, and how have we gotten here? Well, I could spend a lot of time talking about this, uh, but it's probably not for this morning, maybe another uh, Sunday in the next few months. But uh, this is the result of uh, postmodernism. And you've probably, if you've been around some of us for a while, you've probably heard me refer to postmodernism before, but it's a 20th century movement that's characterized by broad skepticism, subjectivism, or relativism. Uh, all those isms are just really fancy words to say uh, there's no belief in an absolute truth. 
There's a general suspicion to reason. There's an acute sensitivity to the role of ideology or an absolute truth or a meta-narrative that, it, that we are all a part of. So a long story short, the suspicion against any overarching meta-narrative, I think, has a significant impact uh, on faith communities. Uh, the meta-narrative is based on the experience. So now in our culture, meta-narratives are based on the experience of the individual, and particularly those who have been most wounded or victimized. And so, uh, like I said, I'm not, we can't dive into this as much as I would like to, but we will in future weeks. Um, but the meta-narrative in our culture, in our postmodern world, the, these ideas that have developed over the last couple of decades, is the narrative of those who have been most victimized or most wounded that becomes the most weighty in our culture. And so I want to make no mistake about it. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, is good news for everybody, particularly those who feel like a minority, particularly those who have experienced wounding, particularly those who have been victimized. But it's good news that's based on a bigger meta-narrative story. We have a culture trying to create a grand story out of individual wounded stories. And so what we, what we have is actually a culture that is volatile, it's conflicting, it's angry, it's trying to find scapegoats, uh, because the stories that we're believing are actually coming from a place of woundedness. Um, the Bible, or faith stories in general, actually call us to a higher uh, meta-narrative. Um, and these are the types of things that we expose ourselves to in synagogue and congregation as we come together in worship. For the Jewish people who are scattered all about the region, they came together at synagogue to remind themselves whose they were, you know, what they were about, what, what story they were a part of, the promises that God had given them, even if they were unrealized yet, and it became a place of encouragement to spur one another on, to push one another forward. Uh, when life was going all sideways, it centered them, right? This was the role of synagogue and continues to be so. This place... Uh, I think uh, will continue to be challenged in our culture uh, because of the, the conviction and the belief around a bigger, grander story that we are all a part of. Um, and so all that to say is that we, as we look forward, have to be prepared for the forms of synagogue to change, much like they already have. And I know, you know change is not a word uh, that we love uh, anymore. Uh, we've had enough change, if you're anything like me. Um, but I believe that we are kind of in this place in our culture where things will constantly be challenged and change and we'll have to be flexible and we'll continue to have to do so. Uh, that doesn't mean that synagogue isn't important. It just means that the form of synagogue will have to change. And it always has throughout history. Uh, but the conviction on why it's important has always remained. In Hebrews 10, it said, Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Some translations say how we can incite or get creative um, anyways, how we can incite one another to creativity, uh, not giving up meeting together. So the word here, meeting together, in the original Greek language is the verb of synagogue. It's literally, let us not give up synagoguing together, as some are in the habit of doing. But encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching, the day referring to the, uh, the return of Jesus. Uh, and so the writer of Hebrews is saying, don't give up synagoguing. This is so important. 
Get creative. Incite one another. You know, if, if the form changes, find ways to do it. Uh, you know, if you've got to go online, figure it out. You know, if you, you know, maybe you can't gather in the large group that you used to be able to. Maybe you uh, should gather in smaller groups as we look forward to the next semester of group starting. Maybe God is calling you to be creative and spur you on to start or getting plugged into a group. Uh, expect the form to change. But the essence of synagogue remains the same. The place where we expose ourselves to the meta story, the grand story of God, that we're encouraged and that we center ourselves on whose we are and what we're all about. This is the purpose of synagogue. So expect the form to change. Um, but your faith is more than the form or the gathering. Um, if your faith only consists of synagogue, if your faith only consists of synagogue, a place of teaching, a place of information, a place of uh, somebody else singing a song, someone else teaching the word, I think that you could be one podcast, one university course away, one difficult situation or experience away from choosing a different meta narrative or walking away from your faith. If synagogue is all your faith consists of, I'll say it again, you're one podcast, one university course, one bad experience away from changing your meta-narrative or walking away from your faith if it's all that your faith consists of. In my honest opinion, this is the vulnerability of the Western church, that we have actually um, bought into this thinking that synagogue, gathering, the form of our gathering, um, even though it has an important place, we have over-elevated it and it's become the sole energy and focus of the Western church. But the synagogue has never been and will never be enough on its own. It's always been supplemented uh, by other things. And so that leads us to the other two that I want to talk about. So synagogue, it's important. I love it. I'm a pastor. I love getting together worshiping. But if we think that this is actually what it's about um, only, we will be really discouraged. Uh, the second one being encounter. And so Jesus would go into synagogues, the apostles would go into synagogues, uh, but that wasn't all that was happening. There was often an, an encounter or encounters, plural, that would happen in those towns, an experience where God acts. So that's what I'm referring to as encounter, where God is acting and there's an encounter with God that individuals are having. Um, an encounter and experience for many has become a word or concept that we've tried to move out of faith for some reason because I think uh, it's been referred to negatively as experientialism or emotionalism or, or, or thinking that it doesn't have a place in faith or reason. But we are emotional and experiential beings. We don't believe anything without experience. I truly believe that. That we don't believe anything without experience. It might be a lack of experience, which is an experience, of why you believe something, but our experiences shape our beliefs. There's no doubt about it. And so even people that think they've based their faith, their belief systems totally on reason, it's not true because reason always takes interpretation. Our experience always becomes a filter to how we process information. Encounter and experience is critical to faith. You know what? I think that we could recover the importance of encounter. 
we could recover the importance of actually encountering the living God and having that being a foundational thing uh, in our faith. Uh, there was a study done quite a number of years ago with millennials uh, called Hemorrhaging Faith, uh, done by uh, James Penner, uh, who was a professor at, at Lethbridge uh, University at the time. Uh, and, he, and so he did a Hemorrhaging Faith study on, uh, on why young adults seem to be leaving uh, their faith uh, as they grew into adulthood. When they graduated from high school, they were graduating from faith. Why was this happening? And so as he was conducting the survey across Canada, this Canadian survey, and he observed four factors that contributed to those who had ongoing faith and engagement from adolescenthood into adulthood. And the four things, in order of importance, were parents. So I'll pause there for a second. Um, so speaking to anybody whose parents in the room, the best thing you can do for your kids, to, for them to have a vibrant faith, is to follow Jesus yourself. Sending them to kids' church, sending them to youth group, bringing them to church, I mean, it's valuable, uh, but it's not nearly as valuable in their faith development as you following Jesus yourself as their parent. Number one most formational thing for people in faith, how their parents walked out their faith. The second most formational thing that kept adolescents engaged into adulthood was an experience of God. You know, notice that comes before community, it becomes before teaching and beliefs, it comes before the synagogue ideas that we practice and that are important and they're on the list. But the second most important thing is an experience of God. In fact, 60 years ago, Carl Rayner a German theologian wrote, the devout Christian of the future will either be a mystic, and he defines that as one who has experienced something, or he will cease to be anything at all. And I think sometimes as the, the world shifts in our postmodern times and becomes less about the meta-narrative and more about the experience, maybe that's why as people of faith we've pushed back against experience. Um, but experience has weight. Experience has value. It's not the only weight and the only value, but it's important how we're shaped. Uh, and I think Carl Rayner gives this prophetic word 60 years ago that experience for people will be foundational to their faith. Um, and it will be necessary. And so if we continue, go back to the story of Acts. So in Acts 19, Paul goes to the synagogue and he's teaching, right? They reject him and he goes to the the area where the, the, the Greeks were talking about ideas and philosophy, and he goes there, and he's teaching. And then after that event, the text says this, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, Sceva is a Jewish chief priest, and so his kids were doing this. Uh, one day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating, and they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. So let me just go back here. So the, the beginning... So. Paul's going around, and people are having an encounter with God through Paul. It's not Paul, but it's, it's the Holy Spirit working through Paul. There's miracles happening. The sick are being healed. 
evil spirits were being cast out. Uh, people were having encounters with, with God. So Paul was in the synagogue, and then uh, part of the same story, uh, people were having these experiences with the living God. And then kind of as like a part B of this story, we have these Jews who said, hey, that's really cool, all those things that are happening with Paul. Uh, let's get in on that. That seems awesome. Um, and, and this Acts 19 passage has always jumped out to me uh, because it seems so obvious to me that what these seven sons of Sceva, as they're called in the text, what they were doing was trying to survive on a secondhand faith. They were trying to survive on somebody else's encounters. You know, what, what was happening in Paul's life around Paul uh, they thought that was enough to sustain them, and they find themselves uh, quite vulnerable and literally bleeding and naked. To them, Jesus was an idea. What was happening around Paul was something they observed. Maybe they were aware of the gospel. Maybe they'd been exposed to truth and teaching, uh, but there was something secondhand about this. Uh, they said, yeah, in the text here, they, they, they would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches. So you see there the, the secondhandness of their faith. There wasn't, there wasn't actually a personal relationship or encounter with Jesus. It was actually Paul's relationship with Jesus that they were trying to piggyback on. Jesus was an idea, but this left them vulnerable. They had no firsthand relationship, no encounter with God themselves. Um, and so... As we think about New Year's resolutions, and, and I think many of you are probably thinking of them right now, let me offer one up. Let me suggest one to you. I would love to suggest listening to less podcasts, reading less books, consuming less church services online. Those things are great. But... I believe that we are in a place where we are vulnerable because we are living off of secondhand faith. We are living off the stories of other people. We are trying to be encouraged by what's happening out there. Might I encourage you to spend more time in your own Bible, more time journaling as you read the scriptures, more time being quiet and listening, more time seeking understanding because the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, not because Matt or some other pastor or some other podcast is speaking to you. Those things that other people say will not transform your life in the way that a direct and personal encounter with the Holy Spirit will. But you won't find these encounters with the Holy Spirit in the noise and the busyness of life. You'll have to slow down and quiet down your soul enough to get there. The Holy Spirit most often encounters us through whispers. And you can't hear whispers if your life isn't quiet, if you're going too quickly. And so sometimes even in our podcasting and online churching and uh, worship musicking and all those other things we're, we're doing, we're, we're actually just creating more noise in our lives, more secondhand um, stories, information, but we're not actually encountering the Holy Spirit in the same way we could if we were to take all those things away and just actually quiet ourselves enough to spend time with God ourselves. 
I guarantee you that the things the Holy Spirit will speak to you will be more timely, more impactful for you than what anybody else could tell you. And so in our starting point classes here at SunWest, we teach this the SOAP acronym uh, when we do journaling, and you don't need to use SOAP. Uh, it's just giving people tools to actually uh, realize how easy it is, right? That you spend a little bit of time in the scriptures regularly, daily, um, and that you would just write down something that the Holy Spirit's highlighting to you to read. Write an observation. That's what the O stands for. So S stands for scripture, O stands for observation. A stands for application as you pray and listen and ask the Holy Spirit, what does this mean for my life? And then write down what you feel like God is highlighting for you to do, to change. And then the P stands for praying. And instead of just like saying a rote prayer at the end, I would encourage you to start journaling your prayers, writing out your prayers. And not just you speaking, but actually spending time listening and writing down what you think the, the Holy Spirit is saying to you. And then responding to God and actually starting a conversation and a regular encounter with God in your day-to-day life. That little practice over the course of times will change the trajectory of your life absolutely. There's been nothing more formational in my life than the unexciting mundane practice of spending regular time with God and journaling and listening. So maybe for you that means less podcasts, less sermons, less books. Uh, I think it's okay to give up all of that synagoguing activity uh, for carving space and time to have an encounter with the living God. Um, as we look forward at SunWest, from, just from a practical corporate standpoint, uh, you know, I just want to highlight a couple of things. We're, we're looking at reinstigating uh, DeepStream, which is a, a monthly worship service that we did for some time, uh, but we, we stopped doing for various reasons. Uh, but it's really important, I think, that we create time and space for God uh, to continue to speak to us, encounter us. Uh, and so we're looking at reinstituting that. Uh, we offer hearing God regularly at SunWest, so that's going to be offered again in February. If you've never taken that or you don't know if God speaks to you, how to encounter God, how to start these practices in your life, I would encourage you to take that. If you've done the first hearing God course, we're going to be offering a hearing God 2 course, which is now beginning to listen to God for others. And so it's moving uh, one step away from encountering God for myself, and now how do I help others also encounter God and be a part of uh, a community uh, or be a part of doing that for other people? Every Sunday we have prayer post-service. I would encourage you uh, to take initiative at the end of our gathering times where this seems like a one-way conversation and make it two-way. Respond to what God is stirring in your hearts, no matter what that is. Uh, Share that with somebody. Allow somebody else to pray with you uh, at the close of our service. We are... um, relaunching some of our inner healing uh, ministries. Uh, So uh, we have a group that's going to be starting this February called Changes That Heal. Uh, And so it's a a group that really uh, invites God to do a work in our heart to help transform our lives. Um, And so we're going to offer that course now regularly. Um, And so if you're someone that is aware that, you know, this transformation uh, needed and you're not quite sure, what do, I, what do I do? Where do I go? This might be a great group for you to consider. Uh, we also have a prayer ministry, inner healing prayer ministry that will be running uh, on Tuesday nights uh, that you can uh, sign up to receive uh, some two-on-one uh, prayer time uh, that will be life transformational for you, uh, I believe, as well. And so we, we're putting these things in place because of how important Uh, We believe that encounter is to our faith. Synagoguing and listening and talking about theology and ideas is is actually, it's good, but it's uh, it's just not complete. 
Um, so, and then as the Acts 19 passage continues, let's pick it up here. Uh, when this became known, when this event with the seven sons of Sceva became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. Every time I read that passage, I think of my college years where people, where, where people lit their CDs on fire. Um, and some of you don't know what CDs are. Uh, they're what we used to listen to. It's like, like burning your iPhone, uh, Apple, iTunes library. Uh, but I, this is what this brings me back to. And I remember like, you know, there's no way that I'm burning my Rage Against Machine CD. Not going to happen. Uh, why should the devil have all the good music? Uh, so, um, but anyway, the point being that there was a response to the encounter, response to the ideas, uh, more than an encounter, but a response to obedience. And so when they uh, calculated the, the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. In this way. And so this brings us to the third pattern. So we have synagogue, encounter. Uh, but the third one, obedience, is so critically important. That Jesus is always calling people to follow him. Uh, Jesus, yes, talks about ideas, talks about the kingdom of God. Jesus, yes, has conversations and encounters with people. Uh, but it never stays there. There's always an invitation to now live differently. And so ex- obedience is also experience, but it's, it's not the encounter experience where God is acting. Obedience is the experience where we act, where we act our way into experience. And obedience has gotten a bad rap in faith circles as well. You know, we talked about encounters and experience having a bad rap. Obedience has as well because it's been associated with legalism and religious activity. And I think this has just been a ploy of the enemy to twist something that is beautiful and good and important. And you cannot actually go through the New Testament without seeing the importance of obedience. You know, you think of Zacchaeus who has an encounter with Jesus. Um, he, he was a guy who was, who was aware of the synagogue stories, the meta-narratives, but he was living in a way contrary uh, to the person that God had called him to be. He was a tax collector, right? He was taxing his own people. He was working for the Roman government, oppressing the people of God. Um, but he'd heard enough about Jesus, knew enough about the God story that he wanted to get close. So he, he, he gets close to Jesus, and then he has an encounter. Um, Jesus goes to his house for a meal. And after that meal, we see that Zacchaeus changes his behavior. He gives back the money with interest to those whom he has taken. And we see repentance and generosity. We see obedience after the encounter. We see the woman at the well where Jesus has this um, profound encounter with when people are accusing her, and he defends her, and he says, where are your accusers? And she says, they're not here. And he says, he says uh, neither do I accuse you or condemn you. Now go and sin no more. And he invites her to a life of change and obedience. Uh, we see Nic- Nicodemus, who in the beginning of the gospel comes to Jesus at night because he's scared, but after he follows Jesus for a while and gains confidence and has encounters with Jesus, he goes uh, to Jesus uh, during the, the passion narrative with boldness and faith, he was transformed through his obedience. Uh, we see the paralyzed man who, who has this encounter with Jesus through his friends uh, and then responds and he gets up and he walks. And the apostle Paul, who has an encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, and that changed the trajectory of his life. Uh, and then it changed, uh, he went from that encounter 
to being obedient and giving his very life to follow Jesus. We see the rich young ruler who Jesus encounters, uh, and they have this fascinating conversation in this encounter, uh, and then Jesus invites him to give all he has to the poor and then follow him, and the rich young ruler goes away sad because he's not willing to take a step of obedience. Obedience is a necessary response to encounter. Uh, Jesus talks about this in John 7, 17. He says, anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Now, don't skip over this verse. Uh, this, this, this verse uh, has been, I haven't been able to shake it out of my head for the last couple of years. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Often we think the opposite, don't we? I will find out whether the Bible is true, whether what Jesus is saying is real, and then once I recognize if it's true or real, then I will do the will of God. That's kind of the way that we function in the West. But Jesus is saying the exact opposite. He's saying if you actually want to know if what Jesus is teaching is real, if it's true, then you actually do the will of God first. You obey what you already understand. And in another account, the disciples of Jesus ask him, why do you use parables when you talk to the people? This is Jesus' answer. He says, to those who listen to my teaching, more understanding will be given, and they will have an abundance of knowledge. But for those who are not listening, even what little understanding they have will be taken away from them. Okay, so notice the difference between understanding and listening here. What, what he's referring to in listening is acting and living out what you hear. So if I understand Jesus' answer to this question correctly, he said, in effect, truth reveals itself only to the one who follows, who listens, who loves Jesus with their whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. The world tries to be clever and satisfy its own desires, but it does not try to be obedient. We like comfort, we like ideas, but we shy away from obedience. Uh, there's, a, there's a German theologian, Martin Schleschke, and he says, without obedience, knowledge is nothing more than vanity. The love of truth is actually lacking. Knowing does not translate into doing. Start acting on what you understand, and you will understand more. But if you stop doing what you know you should do, then you will lose that which you used to understand. Say the last part again. Start acting on what you understand, and you will understand more. But if you stop doing what you know you should do, then you will lose that which you used to understand. If we want spiritual experiences, then we should start to practice what we have already been commanded, those things that we already know. The essence of faith is to learn, is to follow, is to be active in your learning. People who believe in Jesus call themselves Christians today, even though the term only appears three times in the New Testament. The term disciple appears 180 times in the New Testament. And there's a subtle difference that is evident here. A Christian defines themselves by what they believe. They make the confession the center of their religious identity. Christians argue and talk a lot about what they believe. And belief is important, but that's different than a definition of discipleship. A disciple, or an apprentice, we could call them, a follower of Jesus, defines himself by who his master is and what he learns through him. The faith journey 
of the disciples did not begin with Jesus inquiring them about their confession and their belief. It began by Jesus calling them to go with him and learn from him. It was not until the third year of Jesus' ministry, after they had learned and witnessed much and followed Jesus, that he asked them the question, who do you say that I am? After three years of being with Jesus, following him. Then he asked them, who do you say that I am? What do you confess, confess to be true? We often ask the question in the beginning. We often think that faith begins with that answer. And yet that answer can only be answered as a result of what we have learned in discipleship in obedience in following Jesus. And then we can confess what we know to be true because we know what we know because we followed Jesus and that has made him known. You know, it's actually not that different from learning a musical instrument. I remember uh, when I was eight years old, my Christmas present um, I thought I got hosed by my parents. You know, it was one of those moments where I opened my gift and it's like, that's it? Have you ever had your kids do that? Have you done that to your parents? Like, that's it? That sucks. Um, I had one of those moments as, a, as an eight-year-old and then uh, my parents let me be sad and depressed and cry just long enough and then they said, go look in the closet. And then I opened the closet and there was my first guitar uh, that was sitting in the closet. And I remember picking that thing up trying to learn how to play it. I didn't have a pick or anything. I remember getting blisters. I had blisters all over my thumb and I was bleeding and, you know, it sucked. And I actually put it, the guitar away for a couple of years. Uh, I tried taking lessons. And I put it away for a couple of years because I didn't want to learn. Uh, and then when I was 12 years old, I picked it up uh, more, more intensely and practiced hours upon hours. Um, and thousands and thousands of hours I, I practiced. And my kids come to me now, and they want to learn how to play guitar. I'm like, I'm happy to teach you. I'd love to teach you how to play guitar. And so we sit down, usually for about 10 minutes, and I'd show them something, and they give up right away. They're like, this is too hard. My fingers don't move that way. It just doesn't work. Dad, what you're telling me doesn't work. Um, and their, their, uh, their ability to stick to it long enough is very, very minimal. Um, and, you know, I watched lots of videos. I, you know, I love watching my favorite guitarists play. Um, you know, I went, to guitar, I went to a guitar teacher my whole life, you know, and watched him play things, and I marvel at how he could play. Um, and I could know a lot about guitar without ever touching a guitar. I could know theoretically what my fingers were supposed to do by watching someone do it enough. But it's far different, as you know, if you learn a musical instrument, than understanding what you're supposed to do and getting the, uh, the fingers to actually do what they're supposed to do. You don't get to do that without hundreds and thousands of hours of practice. Faith, I believe, is like that. You know, synagogue is kind of like, you know, being exposed to good music, watching someone play guitar a lot, having an understanding of what it's supposed to sound like, what it's supposed to look like, what the forms and the shapes and the scales are supposed to look like. But real faith is, is actually the practice of being obedient enough and disciplined enough to pick it up and do what you know you're supposed to do. And we learn and we understand over time through our obedience in a way that we don't learn and understand just by watching someone else play. So, 
like I said, I'm skipping a few stones across the water here. Um, synagogue encounter obedience. I, I, I think all three of these are vitally important as we grow in faith and follow Jesus. Uh, I think they actually only make sense when they're working together. Synagogue on its own is not enough. Encounter on its own isn't enough. Uh, being obedient on its own without being having an encounter with God or being exposed to the grand story of God and just being obedient is religious legalism. These pieces actually only come alive when we start to practice them together. And so, as we look forward to the future, which we don't know how this is going to unfold, when we think about synagogue, let's spur one another on, let's incite one another, let's, let's get creative. We don't know what it's going to look like as we gather, but let's not give up gathering. Let's not... Um, Give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Make sure that you're engaging in a local community of believers, whether in a group or an online group or whatever that looks like at a service, that this becomes a priority for you as we move forward in the future. But that's not, a, that's not enough. Create time and space in your life to encounter the Holy Spirit. Uh, maybe it means joining a hearing God group, participating in uh, prayer ministry here at, at SunWest, uh, starting to incorporate devotions and journaling and listening prayer in your day-to-day life, but start to create time and space to encounter God. And maybe that means leaving behind some second-hand faith things that you've been relying on. Less podcasts, less books, less consuming church services, uh, and actually go to God himself. Create space for encounter. And then lastly, Obedience. Don't just focus on trying to have experience with God, but recognize that those experiences with God often come out of us acting in obedience out of the things that he's already told us, the things that we're already aware of, the things that we already understand. We don't wait for our idea of what our experiences should be to be obedient to God. We actually start stepping forward in faithfulness here and now. And as we do that, God will reveal himself. He will make known what we need to be Uh, to be made known to us. It doesn't happen the other way. We are obedient and then we get revelation, not revelation and then obedience. I'm going to invite you to stand uh, with me. Um, As you think about those three things, I I would encourage you just to reflect and think, what would it look like for me to be more holistic in my faith in 2022? What would it look like for me to actually be more intentional about synagogue, to create space for encounter, or maybe there's something, there's something that I know God is calling me to that I haven't been obedient in, I've been neglecting, and, and 2022 is the year where I'm going to go after it. As we worship, I would invite you to, to actually pay attention to what the Holy Spirit is highlighting in your heart uh, and the changes that he might want to implement into your life in 2022. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you. Uh, we thank you that this isn't rocket scientists science. Uh, We thank you that it's actually not that complicated. Lord, that you're not calling us to do anything more than we're capable of doing. Lord, we thank you that encounters are not up to us, but they're up to you and your initiative, and we simply make space for you to work. Lord, we thank you that you're a God who initiates. Lord, we thank you for a community where we can be reminded of the meta story, the grand story, the gospel story in which we're all a part of. Lord, we pray that you would give us just a dedication to you and one another to be creative no matter what the future looks like as we continue to gather and remind ourselves of the story that we're all a part of. 
Lord, I pray for those who um, maybe they've been aware of what you've asked them to do already, but we've just we've neglected that. Lord, I pray for just a spirit of repentance, which is a very life-giving word, which means turning from the way we've been going and actually following you. And so, Lord, we hear that call this morning to follow you, not to be content with just synagoguing or waiting for spiritual experiences, but actually one that has an intentional followership where we get up each day and we follow you as our Lord and our King. Uh, Lord, I pray that 2022 we would see our lives transformed more, our community transformed, and the city transformed because of your spirit moving. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Synagogue encounter obedience. Uh, I trust that the, that the spirit of God has been uh, elevating some or one of those uh, as we've gathered this morning online or on site and, um, and has been speaking encouragement to you as you step into 2022. We don't know what's going to happen in our world anymore. I mean, I'm, I don't, uh, you know, I was saying in pre-service prayer, we're going to two services next week and I don't even know if we'll have any services next week. Uh, that's, kind of, that's just kind of the way things feel these days. So we, we cannot control what happens out there, but that doesn't mean that we can't live with hope and peace and faith and confidence in here. And so Jesus invites us to a life of faith, a life of kingdom perspective where, where we're not actually moved and swayed by what's happening in the world around us. And I, I think uh, that's something that we all uh, need to be reminded of, right? That the kingdom of God is not the kingdom of this world. Um, and so it's not just enough to talk about it and to think about it. Uh, we actually want to encounter this living God who's beyond what's happening in the world. We want to be obedient to this living God who loves us and has called us according to his purposes. And we get the joy of following him and living from that space no matter what is going on. And so I pray that in 2022 that you would experience a vibrancy and intimacy with the Lord uh, that is on a new level that you have never experienced before. Let me pray for you. Uh, just a reminder that we have prayer teams available at the end of a service. I invite you to, uh, to receive prayer. Uh, and also a reminder that next week we're at two services at 9 uh, and 11. We would encourage you to serve in one and attend one. Uh, if you're interested in serving, just go to the Welcome Center. We'd, be, we'd love to chat with you. Lord, we thank you again that you are a God, um, you, that you are God. Uh, we thank you that you are God. Um, and as we reflect on this last year and look forward to the next year and not knowing what to expect, uh, Lord, if we've learned anything in these last couple of years, it's, it's how uh, much we aren't in control, how little we actually know, um, how dependent and vulnerable we are. Um, and Lord, thank you for those reminders that you are God and that we are not. Thank you for the reminders, Lord, that we were made to be in a vibrant relationship with you. Lord, we're sorry for the noise that we create in our lives. Lord, would you give us a ruthlessness to eliminate noise? Uh, would we hunger and thirst for your presence in our life more than anything else? Lord, we know that we actually need your presence in our life more than we need anything else on our wish list. Uh, Lord, would we know that? Would we live from that space and that place? Lord, may we be people who are obedient and following you uh, to the things you've already called us to, regardless of of what's happening in the world around us. Give us that confidence, that faith, and that courage. 
We thank you that you go before us. In the name of Jesus, I pray. And all God's people said, amen. Well, happy new year. I look forward to journeying with you uh, in this next year. Uh, Go in peace, and we'll see you next week.